Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Histories of gay men, lesbians, queer, and trans people often focus on the heroic, the pioneers who blaze the trail and on whose shoulders present-day queer life stands. But what about the cast of gay characters who were not so heroic and righteous, whose impact on history was far more ambiguous or complicated or out-and-out bad? That's the question asked by Ben Miller and Hugh Lemmy in their hugely successful podcast, Bad Gays. Now in its sixth season, the podcast focuses on what its hosts describe as evil and complicated queers in history, with subjects ranging from Emperor Hadrian to Ronnie Cray, from Alexander the Great to Andy Warhol. Now Ben Miller and Hugh Lemmy have taken their exploration to a book titled Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Like the podcast, the book examines just what those complicated lives can tell us about the dynamics of queer history and the formation of sexual identities. My colleague Rosa Campbell sat down over Zoom with Ben and Hugh to talk about the book and the podcast. She began by inviting them to explain the intentions behind their project, how lesbian, gay, and queer histories are usually told, and what their work set out to do differently. So I think it's important to say that the intervention that we're making is really a, an intervention in public history. Uh, there's so much incredible uh, critical work that's been done in queer history. And that was actually one of the reasons why we started the project, uh, Hugh and I, was a frustration that we both felt with the yawning gap between that kind of critical justice-oriented queer history that was really interested in big questions about how sexuality was made, how it changed over time, how it influenced other systems of power and oppression, mm -hmm. and then this kind of queer public history conversation that's, you know, card stacks on Instagram about top 10 heroes for Pride Month, and uh, it's at the end of the day pretty boring and, and reactionary and stupid. And so we wanted to see if we could have these kinds of critical conversations, but in a way that led with stories and not with theory, and in a way that led with these really kind of um, sexy, interesting, compelling life narratives uh, that would hopefully uh, invite more people into this ongoing conversation about sexuality and power in history. Yeah, and I think that's partly to do with how the project started. Um, I'm not a historian um, by, by training or inclination, really, but I, I'm very interested in history. So my access to history is largely through public history. So this kind of was a lot of my understanding of um of queer history and as I started to read a bit deeper I sort of was engaging in some of these conversations that I think um, Ben is, was much more engaged with in his uh, work as a historian so so when I wanted to start a podcast um, Ben was a natural person I wanted to start a project with and and have these discussions with because I think um, I wanted some answers and I felt Ben maybe could be someone who could give me some of those answers and th that having somebody who's sort of not engaged necessarily in that critical uh, academic history, which goes into more depth into the subject, meant that I was perhaps more of an audience surrogate, at least in the in the first couple of seasons, um, asking the questions that I wanted to know. And I think that's also partly because 
quite a lot of the public history that we're experiencing or, or, or that we're talking about here doesn't really give much credit to the audience, doesn't give much credit to the public. And I felt like, you know, I don't I don't have this knowledge, but I'm an intelligent person. And m- most people, I think, who want to have this conversation are intelligent people. So we can have quite a high level conversation um, without presupposing a whole bunch of knowledge, but presupposing that the audience are critical and, and and intelligent. And I think this was kind of maybe what was lacking in a lot of LGBTQ history is this assumption that people are starting from a 101 level. So, Hugh, you, you just said then that there were like specific questions you had around gay or queer history. So you approached Ben as a historian kind of to think about how they might get answered. So were there specific questions you had that you can recall now when you were starting the project? Well, it was more, I mean, I, I met Ben um, actually just as a, as a friend. Uh, he was um, he was on holiday uh, in Barcelona where I live and we have a mutual friend who said, you know, you got to meet and 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 and, uh, and chat to this guy, you really get on, which is the sort of thing that I hate is, you know, a, a friend date being set up by a friend. So I sort of went along so for him really saying like okay well I'll go for go for a quick coffee with this guy and that was at sort of 4 p.m and I think at like two two in the morning we were stumbling out of a bar together having just had this really great conversation got on really really well having having this this conversation a lot a lot of it was about queer history um so it seemed like a in some ways that it was just a natural continuation of of this friendship so the aspects I guess yeah like there was a historiography that Ben could definitely bring to it but there was also the questions I think that I had coming into the project were about the the how the, the gay identity was created and the relationship of the the development of a homosexual identity, especially in the 19th century, early 20th century, mm-hmm. um, and how that that history influenced the creation of that gay subjectivity. And for me, uh, the project has been very illuminating because it's helped to create, I guess, a, a prehistory of that sexual identity, and also elucidate how the sexual subjectivity that we have today came to be formed and so there are all these sort of cultural aspects of my sexual identity as I that I inherited as a as a young gay man that were sort of passed down but now I sort of understand how all these aspects and these critical questions within the the gay identity came to be and and and, and some of the problems and the problematics of it as well you know aspects to do with for example masculinism and things like that and I think that this the project of bad gays is really uh, helped flesh that out as a conversation. Yeah, I just want to add briefly, he was being extremely um, modest here, but I've never felt that, you know, Hugh is the surrogate for the audience and I'm the historian and uh, Hugh is bringing the, he was bringing the questions and I'm bringing the answers. I've learned an enormous amount from Hugh as well, from Hugh's a much deeper knowledge than mine of, for example, the history of sexuality in England. We both have our kind of regional specialties and, and areas of interests and language abilities. And, and um, it's always a project where, you know, each profile that we do, and this is true, whether it's been on the show or in the book, one of us has done the research and the other one is kind of playing the, playing the role of the audience, asking questions, making dick jokes, kind of leading the whole thing along. I, I felt that I've I've learned just as much from Hugh over the over the course of the project as I've as I've communicated I guess if that makes sense and and um, if if Hugh is a is a non-historian with a with a great interest in history then I'm a historian with an immense amount of anger and frustration about the 
um, unbelievably cramped and conservative nature of our extremely conservative and boring discipline. And mm. so I think both of us are kind of reaching out across across the across the disciplinary divides quite a bit. Okay, I, I won't make a comment about history, <laughs> um, but I will ask you, which I think links actually, Hugh, when you were saying just now that there were certain parts of your identity that you see now how they were constructed through the project of Bad Gaze, I think one of those parts of our identity as queer people that we see as maybe ahistorical that or there's a sense in the queer in the, in queer spaces in the queer community in queer public history but probably also in some queer activist circles that sexual desire or sexual practices have always been an identity uh, as the way that we understand it now you know so that like uh, our desire makes us a queer person or our sexual the sexual acts we get up to make us queer and i wonder about why you think that is um, because in Bad Gaze, you obviously show us in a very rigorous way that that is not the case, that in fact, previously in history, sex acts did not equal identity. So I wonder why you think there is this sense that desire has always been an identity. Why do you think that is? Like, is that different to other social movements? I'm thinking about feminism or, I yeah, I'm just wondering if, what you think. Yeah, right. I mean, it's an interesting question. And to, to some degree, that's part of the history that, that, that history has been used to to create that that homosexual mm -hmm. identity that um, from the very sort of earliest days of uh, what we would now describe as the homosexual identity as a sort of self-conscious cultural um, subculture, but also as, as a sexual subjectivity in itself. Uh, looking back for historical examples of, of homosexuality has been has been an important historical and political task. And I'm, I don't think either of us would write that off as an extremely important process of the creation of a, of a sexual subjectivity and the creation of a sort of social identity. To look back into the past and say, um, we have always been here, is a political task to say, to, to counter the idea that, for example, same-sex acts are some sort of um, symptom of modernity, for example, mm -hmm. or some sort of problem with over overpopulation or with the demasculinization, perhaps, or, or feminization of masculinity in a Western society. So the, there's an important role that, that was happening at that whole time in the, in the looking back to history to create this sexual identity. And I mean, Ben can talk, talk probably uh, in a more informed way about this historiography between these sort of essentialist and constructivist notions of, of a homosexual identity and their importance and their, their sort of um, uh, clash, I guess. But looking back, for example, to the birth of perhaps the political movement that I would see myself as the inheritor of, or as, as someone who's developed, my, my sexual identity is developed out of, which is probably the the sort of gay civil rights movement and gay liberation movement of the late 1960s, moving into the 1970s, then the task then of looking back to history and saying these people were gays like us, using that language, was extremely important. Because if you were growing up in sort of a conservative Western society like the United States or the UK, in which your sexuality was suppressed and pathologized and criminalized, and in which your sexuality, your your identity as a gay man was seen as something disgusting and abject. To be able to look back and say, so in the mode of sort of Larry Graham, you know, um, 
uh, Leonardo was gay and uh, Oscar Wilde was gay and Alexander the Great was gay, then that's clearly an important political task that gives you as a person some degree of strength to, to, to tackle your current situation, to say, like, I'm not an abject person. I am a person deserving of love and care. And I am someone who should be allowed to express my sexuality and uh, be worthy of rights. That is an important task, but we feel, I think, Ben and I, I hope I can speak for you here, Ben, feel that in the current moment, as we face a new moral panic, LGBTQ people are established enough and self-confident enough as a political identity that we can have more complex conversations that don't just look for cheerleaders, but look for answers as to why there are such schisms and problems within our, our community as well, to look at perhaps some of the historical roots for for trends and behaviours within our community that continue to serve uh, sort of our own oppression. So, 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 yeah, the, that that conversation that happened was important then. I don't think either of us would dismiss it, but I think we would have a different sort of historiographical perspective on it and a different political perspective as to why the conversation now can be more complex, can be more self-confident. Yeah, I would add, I would think it's actually essential to have this more complex conversation about queer history um, in this moment of political backlash, because I think those answers that Hugh were ta- was talking about, those are answers I think we need to know how to fight back in the present. And uh, I mean, there's, there's really good stuff in uh, Jennifer Evans' latest book uh, about this crowd of history, Queer Kinship After Fascism, where she's talking about these kind of cascading memorial cultures of national socialism in Germany and all of these different claims that get made, claims that get made to um, victimhood and persecution, um, first by uh, gay men, then by trans people. And one of the conclusions is basically that 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 inclusion in a nationalist memory culture is not sufficient to fight back or to articulate a politics of solidarity in the present that is capable of stopping the far right. And I think there's lessons in that uh, that are even broader, that that we that we have to have these more complicated and more nuanced conversations if we're going to have answers um, and theories and strategies that are capable of defeating this backlash. Yeah, and there are plenty of examples also sort of within the community, for example, um, as a gay man, a young, youngish gay man, if I go on Grindr and I see like some perhaps quite explicit racism, you know, people saying like, I won't, you know, no Asians, for example, or I won't have a preference for white men or no femmes that I, I have a preference for masculine sort of men. Like the, these can be strands within the gay community that still feel totally open to express themselves, this sort of racism and and um, femphobia and homophobia. And to be able to trace that back and say there are historical roots to that there are conceptions of what a gay man is that go right back to the 19th century that are based in colonial relationships uh, that are based within racism and that are based within masculine masculinism and misogyny or for example more, more recently the sort of um, upsurge in in transphobia within the gay community as a political current and um, the, the conversation of a more critical conversation about the, the roots of the homosexual identity and its relationship with trans people and with gender nonconforming people can actually sort of challenge those simple transphobic narratives that, that seek to exclude trans people from the LGBT community. Yes, I think what the book does so well is that it shows us, well, as you say, 
the way that white male homosexuality has failed to enact liberation. And you use examples from the history of bad gays to show this, which is quite different to just, I perhaps when I sat down to read the book, I perhaps thought it was going to be a kind of like um, fun, potted biographies book, which of course it is that, but it does have bigger stakes than that. So I just wanted to dig in a bit to that and to ask you if you can discuss the three ways that you say, and, and Hugh obviously just started to touch on that, that white male homosexuality has failed to enact liberation in the book. Yeah. So the three, maybe, maybe I'll just, I'll give the three. Uh, okay, give the three. Yeah. To know them. Uh, okay. So the first is this articulation of the gay male identity and the process of its articulation as being separate from this sort of uh, gender nonconforming or trans other. The project of um, insisting that there is a sharp and categorical separation between uh, gays and lesbians and trans people is initiated by gays and lesbians who are trying to separate themselves from the more unruly or the more uh, often poor or working class, like street queen or uh, trans woman or the sort of different uh, versions of um, trans experience and trans identity that have existed over the years. The second is this relationship between sexuality and uh, systems of racialization, racial hierarchization um, and uh, colonization and imperialism. So sexuality as an identity is kind of discursively created in this late 19th century moment where Europe is in a stage of high imperialism. The metropolis, as we know from having all read our Anne Stoller and Fred Cooper, is being just as transformed by the colonial encounter or by the pro violent processes of colonial and settler colonial dispossession. Um, as are the kind of colonial frontiers, right? And uh, categories of people are being created to be managed by systems of uh, hygiene and medicalization. And um, one of these categories is the the figure of the homosexual and and the whole concept of of sexuality as an identity um, and as a kind of constituent part of personhood. Um, whether you're talking about uh, homosexuality or heterosexuality also kind of emerges in this period as sexual object choice becomes something that because of free time and the kind of dispossession of people from land and urbanization, um, sexual object choice becomes more of a kind of crucial narrative event in people's lives. And the third is related to that last point, which is sexuality is itself a bourgeois project. It's the management of desire and the regulation of desire Chris Chitty talks about this really well in his book, Sexual Hegemony. You know, there's there's this incipient, dangerous, cross-class potential in same-sex desire. And this uh, sexuality, in, in a way, is created to manage that potential and to make sure that it doesn't threaten systems of power and systems of domination and uh, prevailing systems of production and exchange. Most of the stories um, in the book get at all of those things, as I would say. I don't know, Hugh, do you, have, do you have things to add? I'm sure you do. I've been monologuing. No, I think that's a very sort of clear elucidation of the of the, the book. I think the thing to point out, yes, is that we did set down, sit down to write um, a specific history of homosexuality based around especially that relationship to colonialism and a failure of how, how the, the sort of white gay male, gay liberationist project emerged from that and then its failures. As a, as a civil rights movement, as a sexual identity. And so the book is oriented towards the, the stories that tell that story. So 
it is mostly men. All but one uh, of the chapters are about men, and all but one of the chapters are about white men specifically. And that's why we called the book that as a subtitle, a homosexual history. Um, this is this is one illustration of that story, and it's not a mm-hmm. history of homosexuality uh, by any means. It's yeah, it's specifically about the the role that bad gays played in in that story. Yeah, I was struck by the how much there was a history of anthropology that kind of you guys use the word ghosts quite a bit in the book, which is really nice and thinking about haunting and gay life. But I, I was struck by how much the history of anthropology ghosts the history of the creation of gay and homosexual identities. Yeah, I mean, that's my current research project. So, <laughs> so uh, I wondered actually. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it has made its way in there. But if anyone is interested in a history of the relationship between primitivism, ethnography, uh, time, and the self-invention of the white gay man, uh, more from me very soon. Great, great. Amazing. Wow. Time, that's very interesting. Always interested to read new work on temporality. Okay, so what, what makes a bad gay? So I'm asking because... Well, maybe I'll just ask you that question. What what makes a bad gay? Well, that's interesting because when we uh, did a podcast at the end of most episodes, we we asked the question, bad, mm. not bad, gay or not gay. Uh, and these are like actually two very simple questions, which are actually extremely complex mm. uh, in their answers. Uh, what, what do we mean by bad? And, and and of course, what do we mean by gay? And, and, and the conversation about what do we mean by gay, we've sort of already talked about is how much evidence do we have for these people's sexual lives being same-sex oriented in the majority? Uh, how do we discuss whether, you know, the relationship between homosexuality, bisexuality, and compulsory homosexuality is a big question that sort of comes up, I think, quite a lot. And and especially in people who were around before the creation of the, the word homosexual and the development of the idea of a homosexual subject. And then when it comes to bad, uh, yeah, we in the podcast, we tend to talk about, you know, their lives, their lives and behaviors in a sort of ethical and political context from looking from today and then also in the context of the times in which they lived. I'd say it's very much a a, a program that that sort of weighs on the side of nuance. We try to like have quite as nuanced conversations as possible. We're not in the, the sort of job of cancelling, cancelling as it were, various historical figures, um, but rather to put them into context. But with the book, I think there's a sort of other question that 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 came up as well, which is, are they bad and gay, or are they bad at being gay? Because we're looking at the sort of creation of this homosexual identity, looking at the ways in which. Their, their sexual behaviors also related to, to that emerging sexual identity was, I think, also one of the big questions we were trying to ask in, in a lot of the chapters, especially the ones that follow the 19th century. I guess I wonder about, is every historical figure, it's interesting, Hugh, that you mentioned cancelling, because is every historical figure kind of necessarily a bad gay? Because... No. no. Okay. No, absolutely not. I, I think... I think um, there are some who absolutely are, and we discuss them quite openly. And and I don't think we're afraid to say when we think this person is, you know, ethically reprehensible and and their behaviour is sort of inhumane and unforgivable. Um, and I think we're quite happy to st- stand on that. I think there's nothing defensible or rehabilitable about uh, Ernst Riem, for Ernst yeah. Riem, for example, or, or or for example about Roy Cohn. Uh, who's my my sort of personal favourite? Mm-hmm. But there are many who are much more complex. Um, someone like T. Lawrence, uh, known as Lawrence Varabia, yeah. there's so much complexity around 
his behaviors and his attempts to find a, a model and a and a, a space in order in order that his sexual identity can exist in which he can recognize it and talk to his own sexual identity in some way in its re- relationship with, with a sort of orientalized vision of the Middle East, for example, and their liberation struggles, or perhaps even more complex and uh, someone who I think we'd probably both regard as one of the good guys of history, if we're going to make these simple judgments, uh, Roger Casement, who was um, a, a man who did so much to uncover the, the sort of evils and and, and uh, war crimes of colonialism, the humanitarian disaster of colonialism, the exploitation of colonized peoples. And and of course, also was a, a, a big struggle for the, the freedom of um, Irish people and Irish independence. Yeah, at the same time, there's there's so many complexities in his own sexual identity, and it's his relationships with um with people of color that that really sort of complicate how we think about that him as a hero. That that out of these sometimes very complicated relationships in which he, in some ways, sort of might have fetishized the bodies of people of color, he then went on to develop something that really did did at its root challenge British imperialism. And then also what's so fascinating about him is is that the that it was his sexual identity that was used to turn him into a sort of bad gay in the public imagination, especially in the UK, but also to sort of prevent his being turned into a martyr at the time in 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 Ireland, specifically because of his homosexuality, which was was sort of used against him in, in the court case that eventually led to his execution. Yeah, I mean, we 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 say that bad and gay are equally flexible terms <laughs> that we invest with. Uh, we we try to you know be as precise each time we use them about how we're using it in that moment, but it also how we use it might change over the over the course of the project, right? So just as you know, we'll we'll call someone who lived a gay life and identified as gay gay, but we'll also call the Roman Emperor Hadrian gay, someone for whom the concept of male homosexuality as we understand it now would have been an absurdity. So too can we apply bad to, you know, both a Nazi scumbag and a Roger Casement. As I think it's fine as long as we're as long as we're being precise every time. Yeah. I think it speaks to our sort of um hopes for the project in terms of, as we said, like a public history, that the title is like a provocation. It's a good title. It's the sort of title you see on your podcast uh, on Spotify or your podcast app or whatever. And you're like, oh, that looks interesting. And then to to draw people in, but then to have a more nuanced conversation under that, but still to stick to that as like a fundamental question. You know, this is um, like what what does make a bad gay is, is unanswerable in a way, because that is the question that we're continually asking uh, and finding rather than finding uh, an answer. We're finding new answers in every episode. Yes, definitely. And so what do you think we should do with, because in the beginning you mentioned a few people who are seen as like good gays in the movement, so, or in, and in life, and particularly, and you do, I think you do mention the black feminist intellectual Audre Lord, but I guess from where we sit now, there might be things about Audre Lord even that we don't agree with that we see as, oh, well, maybe she was a little essentialist about this because of her context, of course. Um, even if her essentialism was much more expansive than the essentialism of some parts of the feminist movement, I suppose, or like, you know, um, trans-exclusionary radical feminism at the moment. So what do you think we should do with the parts of our, 
because I think I think there isn't there is this kind of struggle over what we do with people who we see as heroes or good gays and the important role they play what we what should we do with their not so good sides talk about it yeah I think that's it it's actually I think it's actually really important you, you know and again I think if we can get out of we are never going to do an episode of Bad Gays about Audrey Lord. Yes. Right? No. We are never going to do an episode of Bad Gays about Marsha P. Johnson or about Sylvia Rivera, right? That's not what we're here to do. However, and I was thinking actually uh, specifically today about Marsha and Sylvia and about mm-hmm. the kind of Stonewall Rebellion because we're recording on the 28th of June, which is the anniversary. And um, every year for the anniversary of Stonewall, I reread uh, Marty Duberman's The Night They Raided Stonewall which mm-hmm. is in Grand Street. It's from it's from his his Stonewall book. And the Duberman text opens with this paragraph about the bartender who was working at the Stonewall Inn uh, the night that it was raided. And that here is this loud drag queen who, like everyone else in the club, is on a mixture of uppers and downers. They were taking something called uh, Nembutal or Nembutan or one of these things that, you know, sounds really fun. And I wish someone would resynthesize so we could all re-experience the the 60s and 70s a little bit, but um, that would be very illegal. But anyway, and she sometimes steals people's purses and is extremely um, indelicate about loudly sharing people's personal lives and and details across the bar. But she has great drugs and arranges great three ways and forces strong drinks. Everyone forgave her. And... Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. It is really important when we think about what happened at Stonewall and when we think about the genuine heroism of the people who fought back at Stonewall to remember that these are people who are not perfect political subjects. These are people who were extremely young. They were extremely not the kinds of people who are the subject of serious political history. They were drug users. They were pleasure seekers. And I think that's important to know because if they fought back, so can we, right? And, and and we need to know that the kinds of people who can change the world are not only the kinds of people that official political history sees as its subjects, and often, in fact, are not the people that official political history sees as its subjects. And so I, I moved away from Audre Lorde there a little bit, but just to say that I think it is really, really important that we have these conversations about people in ways that are adult um, and in ways that include the full kind of richness and material depth of their lives, only because it's important to not overly heroize people and to be honest about what people's flaws were, but also because it's really important to to sort of grant people their full humanity as actors in the past, and also to think about the tension between what we think of as, as flaws or what um, history might think of as flaws and, and what was actually important and meaningful in their lives. Yeah, I think having that broad conversation in public is also something that's really important. And I think what we try to do on on the show, especially, is is when we make calls, you know, uh, regarding whether is someone gay or not gay, you know, um, how would we understand this person's gender identity, for example, today, when the options for them to express that gender identity were very different in the past, for example, that we have that conversation openly and then we show our workings. Um, we say, this is how we've reached our conclusions. You are very open to reach your own conclusions based on what we've discussed. And uh, they're equally often as valid. And I think introducing the complexities into those lives is is important. And and, and although we're called bad gays, um, and uh, I think sometimes we have the accusation that we're that sort of a, a bunch of millennials out to cancel these people from history. I think actually we do quite a lot of work to discuss 
what is redeemable or complex or interesting in the lives of some people who in general did behave pretty badly or were quite oppressive to other people that within the life of someone like, for example, Lawrence for Arabia, there is actually a lot of interesting and thoughtful things that shed a light on complexities in his personality and that shed a light also on the complexities in our subjectivity today. Yeah. And, and I think something he said earlier is really important when he was saying, you know, that going through the research for these shows and, and constantly finding things that made him sort of uncomfortable in the present or feel implicated in these histories of, let's say, masculinism or um, the kind of evolution of, of gay male desire. And that's true for me as well. And I think that's a, a big part of our project. Uh, our aim is not to sit on top of history and look backwards and decide what was good and what was bad. Uh, but instead to tell stories in which we ourselves are implicated and made uncomfortable um, and and humbled by the extent to which everyone is acting in a way that is imperfect and is governed by the conditions under which they live. Yeah, that's just so well put, both of you. Thank you. I think also perhaps, you know, chronicling or having figures that we well, that we look up to or that we see as i mean not not like not like the nazi gays that you have in your in your book you know we probably wouldn't look up to them but like people who you know we do look up to in our movements be allowing them as you say to be different for their own subjectivity and their own the fullness of their character which they were usually denied in their lifetime but also because it shows doesn't it show that things might be different because they indeed they are different. Like if our heroes are just us in the past, exactly us and all of the things that we um, know now to be true because of them, then the future is set. But if they're different to us, the future kind of comes undone and the possibilities of it are opened out a bit more fully. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's allowing their agency uh, and discussing their agency within the situation, the context in which they they lived. Mm. And I think within the sort of general historical project of talking about gay history, both both in the search for heroes and also this this project of looking at the, the the darker side, I think one thing that's really interesting is the degree to which people's sexuality in the past, even when it was acknowledged, perhaps, is an add-on, something that's just, you know, okay, here's this guy's history. And also we we believe you know he might have engaged in same-sex relations or however they'd have worded it in the past. But actually, like, putting their sexuality at the foreground can illuminate quite a lot about how they related to their times and about why they did the things that they did. Uh, it seems ridiculous in some ways now to look at people in the past and say that considering how sexuality can be such an important driving force in so many people's lives today, you know, like, could you write a history of modern Italy without taking into account Berlusconi's sexuality? For example, you know, like these are important issues and they're just as important in the past about sexualities that were regarded as deviant. So so actually going back to, for example, to Lawrence for Arabia, a, a, a biography of Lawrence for Arabia that doesn't take into account his sort of psychosexual drives is an incomplete biography. You can, you'll never get to the truth of Lawrence of Arabia's character. You'll never get even a basic understanding of Lawrence of Arabia's character without understanding how his sexuality related to his relationships with Arab men in particular, and also his relationships with violence and pain and self-suffering, for example, yeah. uh, and masochism. So that's, yeah, like another way that we can, I guess, yeah, put them into context. 
And another thing I think is important, I think maybe going back to your last question as well about the importance of having these conversations is because if we don't have these conversations that are often difficult conversations as adults within the community, uh, then we leave that territory of having those conversations about that, that history to actors who are trying to have that conversation because they want to sort of to oppress LGBTQ people today. Mm-hmm. So a good example for it is, as you mentioned, the gay Nazis, there was a type of masculinist masculinism in the 1920s and thirties in, in Germany, which saw this sort of martial culture, for example, around the, the SA as the sort of, sort of uh, and, and homosexuality as being, sort of two expressions for supreme masculinity. And someone like Ernst Rehm was was enacting that. He thought that because that his homosexuality made him more masculine than some of the other Nazi leaders because he he completely assumed the sort of company of, of weak women who would drain his energy. For example, if we as LGBTQ people don't talk about that and have that conversation, the only information that you can find about that in the public sphere is sort of part of public history is books like um, The Pink Swastika, which is a sort of homophobic, Holocaust-denying conspiracy theory, which takes these simple points but doesn't discuss them in context but uses them as, as a, for, for that sort of conversation. Uh, and another example of that would be the role of pederasty within the conception of a homosexual identity in the 19th century, or even perhaps the, the role that paedophile rights groups tried to piggyback on gay liberation and these sort of civil rights movements in the late 20th century in the 1970s. Um, if you don't, if we don't have that conversation in context as LGBTQ people, as adults, which is a very, very difficult conversation to have, then the information that is out there about that is just coming from people who want to smear LGBTQ people as somehow inherently linked to, to child abuse. Yes. Thanks for that, Hugh, that last point. In the conclusion, you do offer a future vision of liberation through the history that's rendered in the book. And though you don't totally discard identity politics or queer autonomous organising, it reminded me of what the feminist and musician Bernice Johnson-Reagan says about the role of the home and the coalition in liberation politics. So just to quote Reagan, she says, coalition work is not done in your home, but in the streets. Some people will come to a coalition and they rate the success of the coalition on whether or not they feel good when they get there. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's exactly right. (laughs) Like one of the things that I think is really great about Sarah Schulman's uh, recent book about the history of ACT UP, Let the Record Show. And I think Kay Gabriel was really smart in her kind of response to a critical review of that book and and zoomed in on this and and clarified my thinking on this a lot. So I want to credit her for it. One of the stories that book tells is the story about how a political coalition managed to be effective despite being imperfect in many ways and despite being extremely unpleasant for a lot of the people who were in it and that it didn't feel great for everyone all the time and it didn't precisely map onto, it it didn't look sort of how how we might like it to look or how the people who, who were in it wanted it to look. And the reason that it was successful is because people were able to act in enough solidarity and agree on enough shared goals and create a structure with enough freedom and flexibility around those goals uh, that they were able to get stuff done despite it. And so I think solidarity and, and coalition work will end up being a lot less 
rewarding and fun and we will feel less like the main characters in it than when we are sitting around with our five best friends theorizing our precise vision of the future utopia but i think it's important and at you know nothing feels better than than winning i think um the recent history of lgbtq rights and especially gay and lesbian rights in in the uk and the us is really illuminating for the complexities and the sort of ups and downs of of these sort of struggles and how they can be taken one way or another you know it's like that in 50 years we've gone from a position which taking the uk as an example because i know that best that that same-sex acts were were criminalized and ostracized and uh gay men were at best kind of a, a, a figure of pity and seeing that transformed within within 50 or 60 years to the position we're in today uh, is just an amazing social transformation, a huge success, a huge cultural success that was won by concerted effort, a, de- a decision, okay, we're going to make ourselves a recognisable sexual minority. We are going to fight on the sort of streets for a sort of social change as well as like a legal change. But at the same time, the moral panics that emerge within that, and you've seen the sort of ups and downs, you know, the sort of the moment in the 80s around AIDS and Section 28, and the one that we're in now, these things have to be continually fought for and rewon on both legal and social grounds. I think gay marriage is a really interesting one, that um, gay marriage emerging as a sort of need out of the out of the AIDS crisis where lot of, lots of men were denied access to their their loved ones when they were sick, they were disinherited, they weren't allowed to partake in their partner's funerals. Sometimes they'd been in relationships for 20, 30, 40 years and they were sort of shut out. And then the success of gay marriage happening largely, uh, to, to a large extent, because it was taken on as a conservative moment within a sort of property-owning, perhaps, gay white male culture in order to solidify those rights. And I'm, I'm not someone who would oppose gay marriage. I think if there's a civil right, that should be open to all. But the way that was sort of used to derail the idea of a activist street culture of ACT UP, for example, and these sort of um, moments, I think one of the most interesting quotes actually around gay rights that there is, is, is David Cameron when he was arguing for gay marriage. And he said, I'm not for gay marriage despite being conservative. I'm for gay marriage because I'm a conservative. So you see this moment in which the this this sort of social culture has changed, and then this sort of demand is sort of flipped back on itself and becomes an important demand which removes the difference and removes the role of activism and coalition building within LGBTQ politics and makes makes a conservative demand. And then at the same time, you see this transformation, even within the terms of that one government, the, the, the conservative government that's been in power, that you've gone from this position where David Cameron can stand up and, and say that he's for gay rights because he's a conservative to a position you have now where the education secretary is calling for investigations into some school because some right wing wing not is accusing the school of having kids who identify as cats as part of a trans moral panic you've seen how that rights based agenda can be manipulated in in these various ways to to hold on to power or to make cases within within those movements and and th- this conversation is divorced from this coalition building which i think has to be much more expansive from just a simple rights based agenda and look at this cultural social struggle and its and its history and how they've attempted to split 
split LGBTQ people apart, of course, in the past and silo people off in order to in order to further various political agendas. And that the coalition building is class based coalition building, especially is vital to to um, a wider project of liberation. I, I want to ask you something which wasn't on the questions I sent through, but I'm going to ask you anyway, which is and it's kind of a big question, so feel free to pass. Why do you think we're in this moral panic right now? I think because we're in a moment of epical change in sex gender systems. And I think those changes are profoundly threatening to the right and to the far right. And they're trying to stop them violently, um, just as they have tried to stop them in the past. And we know that they can they can't quite stop them. They can get a really big body count on their way to trying, and that's our job in fighting back to keep that body count low or non-existent. But they're they're facing down a, an unbelievable shift, I think, in any measure in how people interact with sex and gender in this in this uh, new generation. Yeah, I think also uh, there's a wider conversation to be had about put, putting this current moral panic that's happening in, in the US, especially and the UK now, within the context of sort of geopolitical events. I think there's there's a lot of anxiety in the West about uh, its current position and its status going into the future. There's a sort of reactionary demand for a sort of return to order, as it were. Um, there's a fear around, I guess, birth rates there's a there's a huge uh, racist theory, fear fear a conspiratorial th- fear around this great replacement theory yeah. which incidentally the, the idea of the great replacement theory emerges from a, a gay man that was developed by a by a very very, very bad gay indeed reino Camus. and then looking especially of course the the, the relationship with uh, a sort of fear around the liberalizing western sexual norms and changes in sex gender systems is often countered uh, or counterposed with orientalized fear of the east which is definitely happening in a moment so if you go back to the 1920s and 30s in germany the fear of the sort of collapse of german masculinity uh, the rise of a sort of liberated feminist womanhood and the fear of this bolshevik sexuality uh, is, is 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 sort of key to to some of those right-wing understandings of sexuality at the time i think that's the same thing that's happening at the moment um i thought it was profoundly interesting when russia invaded ukraine last year that there was a not inconsiderable number of think pieces and tweets from mainstream commentators, uh, not not just wing nuts, but people writing for mainstream newspapers about our pronoun army, how weak the West was because of its uh, uh, record of taking of, of more sort of acceptance of LGBTQ people in in the military, for example, uh, that we'd weakened, fatally weakened our society, and that Putin had seen this weakness and seized upon it to invade those sort of calls have mysteriously gone quiet in the last year as as, as this this sort of um, reborn Russian masculinity wasn't victorious on the battlefield. But I think seeing the relationship between this sort of homo-nationalism, as it's called, that, that emerges in the sort of late 80s and the 90s, uh, in which the, 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 the project of LGBTQ rights is adopted and seen as part of a western liberal project whereas previously it was a deviant sexuality but then as they start as, as lgbtq people became more accepted and, and they started to gain more rights this narrative was switched and they started to say actually this is an inevitable 
outcome of the liberal Western democratic project. There's a pushback against that, I guess, from the right, but that that, that these anxieties around masculinity, around the national strength, on a sort of more conceptual basis, the idea of the, the national body, whether the national body is strong, that the political body, the, 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 the sort of body of the nation can withhold these things, or whether it's been fatally weakened by homosexuality or by trans people. I think that on a geopolitical level, there's, there's an aspect there as well around those anxieties, and those anxieties are, are playing out in a sort of conservative backlash. Two questions more, just to finish. The first question is, whose work are you both enjoying at the moment? I am currently enjoying, well, I'll give three things. And I'm, I'm uh, my brain's a little muddled at the moment because I'm, I'm writing an introduction of a, of a dissertation right now, which, as anyone who's done it knows, is... Uh, is like um, a brain oatmeal inducing event. But I um, have been, as part of that, going back to Hayden White. And uh, God, Hayden White was right about everything um, and was great. And uh, we should all read our Hayden White, especially his his thoughts about the relationship between narrative and storytelling and history, um, which I think are really important if we're invested in doing history in a way that's critical and in a way that's politically engaged, but also in a way that's responsive to the way that people actually talk and think, which I think is important to do. And then the other thing that I'm reading at the moment is the astonishing new novel by Brandon Taylor called The Late Americans, which is just a really, really great book about art and money and race and power and people. So I highly recommend it. I'll need a second to think. I've just done a a two-month walk across Spain enjoying which I was so exhausted every night I've not read anything for the last two and a half months so I'm also in a bit of a brain mush yeah two books well one I've I've, I've read recently and the other I've, I've just started but it's proving to be super interesting the one I read recently was um, one that Ben referenced uh, Sexual Hegemony by Christopher Chitty which um, looks at the relationship between an emergent homosexual identity and uh, modernity within a sort of global systems theory and take these uh, nascent metropolises that are emerging in, in, in Florence and then in Amsterdam, Paris and, and London to discuss the relationship between modernity, uh, urbanism, uh, urbanisation, industrialization, and homosexuality. Super interesting. And the other is um, by Sita Balani, a, a new book that just come out called Deadly and Slick, Sexual Modernity and the Making of Race, which I've um, just started, but is is a very interesting game that focuses on regulation of of sexual identities and sex lives in, in British colonies. Fantastic. And the final question is, what's next for you both? Well, we just finished the sixth season uh, of our show, and there's more of that coming. I don't think we're done with it yet. I have a dissertation to finish, um, and I'm finishing it. So uh, that's about all I can think about at the moment. Uh, last year, I made a film called Ungentle, which was a story of the life of a uh, a gay man who becomes a spy in 1930s England and about his relationship with the state and his friends, uh, dealt with sort of ideas of loyalty and treachery and desire. And um, I did a lot of uh, research and some archival research as well for that. So I'm, I'm currently writing a book that expands on the ideas of that and looks at the history of the relationship between gay men and the security services in England in the sort of 30s into the 60s and how that influenced public perceptions of of, um, homosexuality in England and then also uh, a new novel which I'm working on this autumn. Wow well thanks so much both of you for chatting to me this morning. Thank you for having us on yeah thanks for for having us on. Interesting questions yeah.
Many thanks to Ben Miller and Hugh Lemmy for taking part in this conversation and to Rosa Campbell for making it happen. You can learn more about Ben and Hugh and their work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.